when you look at this matrix. I think it's more of a holistic approach where you look at mm -hmm. everything that is training a lifestyle and you cannot really separate one or the other. Marco Altini taking the words right out of my mouth there. You know Marco is the founder and principal at HRV4 Training, and he's so right. Metrics are great, but they need context. They need to be interpreted properly to be useful. Welcome to 8020 Endurance with Matt and Hannah. Hannah, what do you think of Marco? Oh, I think he's great. We had a long conversation about HRV specifically in this podcast. My experience with the WHOOP, which is a wearable technology that is largely based on your HRV and tracking that metric. We talk about why I used it for a year, why I don't use it anymore, why maybe I'll use it again, how I can improve that. A big topic of discussion that you and I have all the time is device dependency, which I think is largely related to our conversation with Marco. Yeah. One thing I really like about him is that he's clearly all in for HRV, but he's not really selling it. You know, he is a scientist, you know, he has a PhD and he talks and acts like a scientist. As athletes, we have experts coming at us from all different directions and you need to know which ones to tune out as just noise and which ones you can really put your trust in. And Marco is the kind of person you can put your trust in. He's giving you the straight dope. He's not just trying to sell you a line. Yes, this reminded me of our episode with Noel Brick as well. Just a lot of research, a lot of factual-based opinions coming from Marco and definitely tangible things that you can use in your training today. Yes, or if you can't train like me because I have long COVID, you can still track your HRV and uh, just learn about your health and why you should stop drinking. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> yeah, but I would um, have to go like a week without alcohol to see some uh, kind of difference. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I, I've done uh, I've done a month here and there. So okay. why not? This is a tangent. Let's get back on track. Say something about Inside Tracker. I was just going to say something about Inside Tracker, actually. Good segue. A way to track some other vitals is Inside Tracker. Blood draw, come right to your house. The way they explain everything is very upfront and easy to understand and process. I'm definitely going to request another blood draw coming up because things have been out of whack over here. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I've, I've got a cold and things have, things have been feeling weird. So it's time. Also, is your building on fire? Do you need to escape? <laughs> oh, no, I... Uh, sirens. Oh, that's just Chicago. <laughs> right on. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Marco Altini, welcome to 8020 Endurance, the podcast that's 80% on rhythm and 20% off beat. How are you? Thank you, Matt. Good to be here. I'm good. Thanks. Good. So yeah, I wanted to make an oblique reference to HRV in, we do a different spin on our intro every time. I'm wondering if I can't ask the listeners if they caught the reference, but did you catch the reference? Did you know what I was doing there? Um, I'm not so sure. Oh no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I, I threw in, I, I know you're fluent in English, you've spent time in the States. How many languages do you speak, by the way? Um, just uh, Italian, English, some Spanish, uh, and yeah, my Dutch is shameful, so that's definitely not part of the list, despite living in Holland, so apologies to all the Dutch people. <laughs> right on. So anyhow, that was my try to have a thematically relevant intro. Let's get on with the conversation. Hannah, take it over. <laughs> Sure. Okay, so basic question to kick it off. 
a lot of our listeners obviously are endurance athletes, and I'm guessing a majority of them know what HRV stands for, heart rate variability, but can you give us a quick little synopsis about why that's an important training metric and an important thing to keep tabs on? Yeah, yeah, sure. So HRV is basically a proxy of physiological stress. And that's why it becomes relevant in the context of training, as well as, you know, in general for health. But I would say specifically, there is a large community of people interested in it in the context of training, because uh, as we all know, people interested in training tend to be motivated in, you know, collecting this data, looking at the data, have some sort of goals, no matter our level, we have our PRs or whatever goals we want to achieve that keep us engaged with the process of training and the feedback that we get. And I think this measure of stress in the context of training is also something that is a bit more actionable than for other applications. For example, if again, this market of stress highlights that our body is particularly stressed, we can do something about that in the context of training. For example, we can take an easy day or we can take a day off. If we are, let's say, looking at this data in the context of just other psychological stressors or our health and things like that, it might be much harder uh, to make, let's say, day-to-day changes that impact our physiology in a positive way. It will still be relevant, but just a lot harder, I think, to get in that feedback loop and make use of the data, which is why it is predominantly used in the context of training, despite the fact that it's just a marker of overall stress, which comes from you know training, anything health-related, strong stressors like alcohol intake or intercontinental travel, the menstrual cycle, all sorts of things that impact our physiology and then we can capture with this kind of measurement. Yeah, so more like holistic uh marker of where you're at with your training and then just in life too because like you said those those other stressors like international travel maybe like an emotional stressor with a relationship or something like that can have a huge impact on your health yeah exactly now you started hrv4 in 2012 i believe and obviously you didn't just start the company one day after learning about hrv so you've been probably paying attention to the science, the technology for a while. Most athletes are, are newer to the, the HRV game. What was that evolution like? Have experts known about HRV a while and they were just waiting for the technology to be usable? Or did we really not know much about it until the early 2000s? I think it's a good mix, meaning that the basic of the physiology is something that has been investigated for a long time. I was just reading these days a book about PPG that just went out. PPG is the technology that we use, for example, to measure with the phone camera, right? Just to capture changes in blood volume. So these technologies were developed actually in the first prototypes in the 1930s. So that's been a long time. They would use a light from a, from a car to illuminate the finger and then, you know, measure on the other side. Uh, so this kind of things has been done for a long time and similarly, We've been measuring HRV in the context of health and disease for a long time. However, much of uh, what we have been doing before was very different. For example, we would take a single measurement under very controlled conditions because, you know, the measurement 
was not so easy to take, right? You needed certain equipment and then, yeah, it was a process, right? So you would do that and maybe you would be able to compare that measurement from a group of people, healthy people, with a group of people that was not healthy at some specific condition. Or you would take the same group and then measure once and then go through a long intervention and then you would measure them again. So we had an idea that we could track certain things, but really at the macro level, you couldn't go um, at the individual level and look at day-to-day changes in response to stressors because we didn't have really the technology to do that um, even in real life, let's say, you know, at home when you, when you can measure outside of certain conditions. Even the first studies looking at longitudinal data, but still having subjects, participants going to the lab. I would say that's not ideal either because you, for example, cannot exercise or have to watch what you eat and things like that. Then go to the lab, then you rest 30 minutes, and then you're told to relax while someone is there measuring you <laughs> with you know, electrodes on your body and things like that. So very limiting, especially when you're measuring stress, right? You're probably the right. same reason why you shouldn't measure your blood pressure at the doctor's office and things like that. So with the technology, we started looking at things longitudinally over time, changes in response to stressors for different people. And I think that also helped the research because, you know, now it's much easier to do studies where we look at these things. Everything that is actually HRV guided training, which means using HRV to adjust training and then measuring performance outcome in the longer term, is something that has been done mostly in the past few years. There is one study from 2007, I think, and then most of the other studies have been in the past decade. So it's quite recent because you need people to be able to measure at home and then to implement changes that way. So the physiology, you know, human physiology does not change. Our ability to measure has improved. And I think uh, this has also led to better research or at least more realistic settings in the past few years which also helps understanding the limitations that we have sometimes and things we don't really fully understand yet. So I'm no scientist, so I want, I want you to correct my definition of HRV. I had about a year with the WHOOP, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, which is totally based on HRV and then off of that number, you know, how much strain can you put on your body, etc., song for another time but I became like obsessed with just that number and it, it kind of took over my life so I had to had to throw the whoop in the drawer for a bit but um it definitely helped set like a baseline of where I'm at and what things really affect me and and how much so HRV why is it important for athletes this is my reason <laughs> please please correct it because I'm sure it's slightly off but especially for endurance athletes HRV is important you want a higher HRV and it's important because it's how your heart and your body can adjust to different stressors in your life and how it can come back down quickly and okay that's it please help (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so uh, a couple of things there for sure, that's you know why we measure it. It's a marker of stress. So in general, the number itself, let's say the absolute number, is quite irrelevant to compare with other people. But what matters is how it changes for us over time. We can also say that in general, higher is a bit better. You know, it means that typically what we capture is the activity of the parasympathetic system. That's 
a part of the autonomic nervous system, which is the part of your body that is keeping everything in check while you don't think about it. For example, you know, you don't think about breathing mm-hmm. or your heart beating and all of that. So all of that is done automatically. And this branch, the parasympathetic one, is the one um, that is representative of recovery and relaxation, we could say. So the higher this number, the more parasympathetic uh, activity, which means that basically you are in a state of limited stress. If this number goes low, then there is higher stress with respect to you know your historical data. And I think also in the past um, few years, we moved away a bit from the higher and lower sort of story, more to trying to understand what is your normal. So a sort mm-hmm. of a range. And then once you are within this range, basically any change within that range is sort of meaningless. It means that everything is normal. There is always a bit of variability between today and tomorrow. And I think this can help us also obsess a bit less uh, with the tools that we use, right? Because today, maybe my HRV is a bit lower with respect to yesterday, but that change is irrelevant. Everything is normal, so I don't care. And then when things are outside of this normal range, maybe I'm just a bit more cautious, right? And think about what could be that drove this change, right? Was it training? Was it some other stressor? What do I feel? Like you try to combine those things in a way that you can make it work for you. The marker captures these physiological changes in response to stress in a way that makes sense only when you compare it to your own historical data over time. Mm-hmm. And then my understanding too, especially with my use of the whoop for about just over a year your normal like you were talking about how much can someone change that and improve upon that and then also are better athletes do they have a higher hrv just naturally yeah those are are my questions two great questions actually (laughs) i think there are a lot of misconceptions about both of those so your own normal let's say that it can change but if you already check all the boxes in terms of, you know, I sleep well, I have a good diet, I exercise, everything that we consider health conscious behavior, then your baseline, let's say, or your normal is unlikely to change by much. There can be throughout a year, there can be also changes that are just seasonal. Summer, winter, your physiology is a bit different. But you tend to be more or less around the same range over the years with the major factor driving these changes eventually being age but then we talk decades not years right so then you will have a reduction older people have a lower hrv that's the strongest factor behind differences between people is age we have our own normal which is mostly driven by genetics that means also it's hard to do something about it. Some mm-hmm. people have a bit lower HRV, some people have a bit higher HRV. And if you're inactive, never exercised, or your lifestyle can improve, let's say, then for sure you will see changes there like you see changes in any other metric because you know that's just a way to capture a larger health change that you had there. But otherwise, I always say not to obsess over trying to achieve a certain HIV because I don't think that is realistic, especially for people into these tools that already have a certain lifestyle and are taking care of themselves, let's say. Mm-hmm. So that might be yeah, 
might be difficult. The reason why you use it is actually so that you make day-to-day -day changes so that you improve eventually what is health and performance outcomes, not HRV itself. I think that's important to, to understand when we use these tools. And in relation to athletes and uh, do they have higher HRV and things like that, the link there is also quite weak. For example, there are things like even just resting heart rate that have a stronger association with, for example, cardiorespiratory fitness level or VO2 max, you know, for endurance exercise, at least people that are very fit, it, it is extremely unlikely that they don't have a very low resting heart rate. While mm -hmm. for their HRV, it could be all over the place. Like it's not necessarily there. And this association is even weaker as you age. We just brought a paper about this, looking at data from uh, many people across age groups. And for younger people, say in their 20s, there is a stronger link between HRV and physical activity level, let's say, while later this link is, is very weak. And in any case, it's always weaker than the one for resting heart rate. So um, I would say most likely a genetic component there is very strong as it's, it's not something you can really see in terms of athletes' performance or that you might be able to change over time. I think that's an important difference with resting heart rate and motivates the use of HRV more as this day-to-day -day feedback loop. Sometime a few months ago, I wrote a blog post titled, What Gets Measured Gets Overemphasized. And I approach everything from a coach's perspective. And, and it's just one thing I've noticed, if, if you give athletes some sort of test they will automatically seek improvement in that test. And it could be something that's completely irrelevant to their sport. And yet, which is this human nature, you could give an ultra marathon runner a maximum bench press test. And if you have them repeated every six weeks, they will, they will move heaven and earth to improve their bench press. So obviously, you know, it's, it's really important, you know, data, <laughs> Data has the potential, like HRV, to be extremely useful, but that potential isn't actualized unless it's understood and contextualized. And I know that you put a lot of emphasis on that. You're not just trying to sell apps. <laughs> you're, you're trying to help athletes and, and others get healthier and fitter. Where are you in that, in that journey of trying to make HRV um, you know, to, to, to get back to Hannah's experience where it was just sort of a net negative for her, the potential is clearly there, but it's just, you know, we really need to set athletes up for success when they're tracking metrics like that. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I think indeed that is one of the main issues together with all the historical issues of HRV of just having many different ways to measure it, many different times, many different metrics that you could derive from it so many inconsistencies so that's just the scientific part and then in terms of the tool we build issues in there also with the typical approach of higher is better which drives people to think that they should get better numbers while most likely you want to just stay wherever you are and try to have a more stable profile for example so very boring little changes over time instead of you know jumping up and down in response to all sorts of stressors and yeah, on my end, actually, I think what I try to do the most in the past year or two has been to get the educational material out, try to explain these things, uh, because yeah, there is potential, but I see also it is easily misused or how 
people get sometimes too caught into the numbers, as you say. Um, and you know, they you have users that write me emails where they are annoyed that in our app you can measure only once because they want to measure their HRV every second of their life. And I'm like, that is exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. And clearly I'm not communicating something right. <laughs> because, uh, you know, the the whole point is actually for this, less is more. One data point, either the night, like the whoop or aura, or in the morning, like we're up, um, gives you a snapshot of resting physiology. And then your running nervous system is continuously changing because anything you do, will reflect a change. As a matter of fact, even if you just have coffee or just go for a light walk, like all sorts of things will alter your physiology. Transitory way, that does not matter. Like that is not something relevant, it's not actionable, it's not something you can do anything about or you should do anything about. So that's why we should really limit these kind of measurements and assessments to them minimum that is meaningful for your goal, which is normally either to keep things in balance a bit better or to optimize the training process and all of that. So uh, I think slowly we try to get there in terms of explaining these things. It's complicated because in the past few years there have been also, let's say, larger companies that have a broader reach in a way help in getting awareness around these aspects so that, you know, people know that HRV is a thing and it reflects important aspects of your health. But at the same time, everybody does it a bit differently because everybody needs somewhat to differentiate or to pretend they differentiate in a way or the other. So, you know, it gets a bit more messy, but I think, yeah, that's also why Personally, I started working with Aura in the past two years as well, so that it's it's not, again, about the app or the method. It's more about trying to have a common understanding of how we can do this and what are the benefits, what are the limitations of each different method, and then people can learn from that and see what works best for them in, in terms of tracking their resting physiology and potentially making changes that can help them in their health and performance. What are the biggest changes that you've seen in your research that people can make to improve their HRV? And I'll toss in the ones that I learned from the WHOOP. Drinking alcohol was the biggest one for me. So it more, was... more the better? What am I hearing? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> but I was I was shocked by how much it actually affected me. And not just for one night, you know, not just the slight hangover, the maybe not so slight hangover the next day or whatever it was. And then Monday, you know, we pick back up, we're ready to go, do a long run, whatever it is. Like it was it was days that it would it would really affect me. That was the biggest learning. But have you found other things that are common or maybe maybe even not so common? And athletes that affect their HRV and maybe easy wins that they can do to improve it? Yeah, um, well, uh, we just looked at some of the typical acute stressors, even just in terms of uh, training intensity, um, sickness, menstrual cycle, and alcohol intake. And indeed, as you say, alcohol is the strongest. Excessive alcohol intake would have a change, which is three to five times the change that you have after high intensity training. So it's mm -hmm. a huge change in resting physiology. And you know And that affects from, your sleep too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that in yeah. turn, you know, will have implications. So that's 
let's say an easy fix, so to speak, uh, depending on the person. Uh, but yeah, dr- dropping up. <laughs> yeah, Matt, sure. Matt wouldn't do well. <laughs> but quantity matters there. So um, from the data, when if you talk, you know, one drink, at least in terms of HRV, unless you are, you know, intolerant or something, then you would see more or less the same as not having it almost. In terms mm-hmm. of sleep, I'm not sure 100%. It could be that you have some disruptions in sleep stages. Normally in the studies, you still see only um, acute explorations of, let's say, several units of alcohol. So they don't really look at more subtle possible changes in response to less alcohol, which I think would be more relevant or more applicable to most athletes that might like to have a drink here and there, but not too much. So. Yeah, again, the, the quantity there is the main issue. And then everything else at the acute level, I would say, is how you would expect it. So the harder the training, the larger and the longer the disruption. So that's something where maybe the data can help understanding how you respond because everybody is different, right? Some mm-hmm. people can take a lot of intensity. Some people can take a lot less. So maybe here I can add something in the context of training that is also often misunderstood is that you should not expect your HRV to be low after a hard session unless uh, something went wrong, like you did something that you were not trained for, you overdid it in some way in terms of either the intensity or the duration or the number of reps or something else was there, some other stressor that caused a poor response. Normally, if everything goes well, you expect or you want to see always a stable HRV profile the day after a hard session. If everything looks good, it does not mean that you didn't go hard. It means that you responded very well to that stimulus. So that's why, for example, we don't expect actually a strong relationship between training, training load and HRV over time. We do have that link at the acute level, like right after, right? Because everything is suppressed, but then we want to bounce back quickly. And that's typically what happens. You know, elite athletes have a very stable profile. They almost never jump up and down that way. So for them, unless there is an external stressor that is not training related, normally the data would just show, um, again, a very boring, uh, everything is normal sort of profile, maybe with even increases when they increase the load, because that can be a sign of functional overreaching and again, a positive response. So we. Uh, have at the acute level, at the day-to-day, right after the high-intensity session, this idea that, okay, HRV is suppressed because you went hard, but then in the longer term, this process decouples and then you actually have the opposite. So where everything is very stable or increased as you do well with your training, is not reflected in the data, then it means that maybe for you that was not, you know, the appropriate stimulus, or again, there is some other stressor alcohol would confound everything so that is very difficult to understand where the issue comes from that's why when you look at these metrics i think it's more of a holistic approach where you look at Mm -hmm. everything that is training a lifestyle and you cannot really separate one or the other and how often should i know that it probably makes the most sense to be tracking this you know constantly and, and checking in on every now and then not not the every five seconds like you said some people do someone like me let's say who i used the whoop for about a year learned a lot about what affects my hrv and recovery and how to kind of balance that would it be beneficial for me to go back and track that now after kind of 
living that lifestyle a bit differently than before I had the whoop? Or do you think it's like, okay, I know what I, I know what I know. My HRV can't change that that much. And would it kind of be a waste to to go back and, and try it again? So I think that in general, we are never the same person, right? In a different period of time, yeah, the stressors will differ. It could be, you know, it could be work, it could be studying, it could be family, it could be training, it could be health, it could be there's a pandemic and there's life now, so you're always concerned that maybe you're sick. The data could actually spot these kind of things. Sometimes then could be, you know, peace of mind. If you don't feel great, your heart rate is still the way it was before, then, you know, most likely nothing is happening yet. Things like that. So I would say that it's useful to keep doing it, even though for sure you can learn from just the experience. And for example, you cut alcohol and do some things that, you know, it's better for you and maybe you're fine that way. Or you can keep uh, using the feedback and it can help keeping things in balance in the future. As long as we are able to, I would say, develop some sort of healthy relationship with using the tools and, and the data. I think that's the most important part. If we are not able to do that, sometimes you're just better off not using it. And then, you know, we develop some sort of, maybe we used it to develop better that sense of awareness and perception that we might have of how we feel and things like that, which I think is also a process which at times the data can help us, right? Sometimes one of the critics could be that you rely on the data and then you don't think about how you're feeling and things like that. I think mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case, right? Because you could use the data to try to learn a bit better, understand a bit better also how you feel subjectively, because it would just give you a moment to pause and reflect about, you know, the things you've been doing and things like that. So ideally the two would work together so that you have your perception and then the data, which hopefully would most of the time back up how you feel, but then at other Mm -hmm. times might flag something and then that could be helpful. Now, you are a runner yourself, Marco, and I imagine that is quite helpful when you're looking at ways to evolve HRV4, make it more sophisticated, more user-friendly, more powerful. Do you have routine experiences when you're out there training and racing and you come up with ideas? You know what would be kind of cool, um, and then you actually have the power to make them happen. Have you? Is that, has that been part of the process? Yeah, that's always been, I would say, the main part of the process, being out on a run, and then that's when you get good ideas when you're not thinking about it. Uh, So that's, uh, yeah, it's been part of, uh, I would say, how I've enjoyed also what we are doing, developing the technology many years ago, and then building on top of that different tools that I found useful for myself and others in terms of tracking physiology at rest, but also physiology doing exercise, using this measurements and also workouts data that you can link for example you know from tools like strava and so on to get to um, proxies of fitness for example other ways to track progress without having to do you know performance testing and all, all sort of things that are you know done in the lab not accessible to most people time consuming at the same time also stressful so you know if you can keep track of how things are changing especially for recreational athletes I think that's helpful so yeah it's always been a bit of that process until I would say 
the past few years in which I think we try to evolve was a bit towards other tools that are used outside of the context of training. But uh, yeah, training, you know, I'm uh, just a ridiculous recreational runner, but I do love the sport. So that's always my passion. And I think that's what keeps also much of this process interesting after so many years for us. So getting a bit more into your training, we obviously have training plans that we sell based on three different intensity metrics, power, pace, and heart rate. Curious to know what you train by, if any. Um, Do you flip-flop between some based on the day or the workout? And then what is your take on training by heart rate versus power specifically, since that's kind of been the new buzzword in the in the training world is training by power, especially for running. Yeah. So actually, I owe a lot to Matt when it comes to training, <laughs> because many years ago, after reading his books, I've started training with heart rate, worked a lot with resting physiology, and I'd worked less with exercise data. And that made uh, a lot of difference for me. So I started having a lot more fun and running faster and, you know, running out of PRs and then running longer. So that is certainly something I recommend training with heart rate, especially for low intensity running. I think, you know, for me, it was the typical mistake that every recreational runner makes where you think you're going easy and instead I was going much harder than I thought. And then you start training by heart rate and, you know, first runs are are basically walking every two minutes because otherwise your heart rate is super high. But, you know, as you keep training and you already have a few years maybe in which you've been running, that process is quite quick. I think about six months I made most of my progress. And again, for the recreational runners, they're not talking about anything super exciting. But for many years I was running half marathons and I couldn't even run a one hour and 40. And then, you know, six months later, I could run one hour and 24. For me, it was a big change, right? So that was a lot more fun. And I had been running for like five years before. So it's not the, I started running and now I just trained a bit more. I had tried many things and mm-hmm. I, I trained many years, but training with heart rate allowed me to basically spend the time at the right intensity, which I think as Matt explains very well in his books, this is key to improve performance, I would say at every level, because you know it's not something that the elite does because they train many hours and they have no other way to train, right? It's also something that you can do if you train a lot less and, and see the benefits. So for anything that is low intensity, I think heart rate is great because it's a good representation of the internal load. It's the same story as measuring resting physiology in the morning. You do that because it's a marker of stress on the body. On the other hand, when we look at power or pace, if we, you know, if we run, like I live in Amsterdam, power and pace is the same thing because everything is super flat. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't change much, at least until they came out with one that could also work with wind because we do have a lot of mm. that. So that, that makes power a bit more interesting. Um, I feel you on that in Chicago. Not a lot of elevation, <laughs> but a lot of wind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Similar. So I think there, for me, it's not one or the other. It's the same as in cycling, I would say. One gives you external load, so the work you're doing, and the other one tells you, you know, how hard are you working to maintain that 
I think both can be helpful, especially in different sessions, you know, for the low intensity part of training. I think we should always look at internal load mostly. And then whatever power comes out will depend on what you can do that day at that intensity. So that's totally fine. And then if we go for harder sessions, we also know that if we do short intervals or things like that, heart rate will lag behind. It's going to be difficult to have targets and might also not be particularly meaningful while it can help you know to look at power or pace and everything that is external load which or even just rp as a matter of fact that in that case is still some sort of internal load but going as hard as you can for the number of reps that you have to do i think once you've done it a few times that's the easiest more than trying to hit certain numbers at least that's how i do my intervals but sometimes you know especially when you are halfway through your workout i think the external load can help you like fine-tuning that last few uh, reps so that you maintain more or less the intensity constant. So there is a place for both, depending on the workout. I think we can rely more on one or the other. I don't know if that's also similar to your experience. One of the cool things you can do with HRV4 that we haven't uh, touched upon yet is collect data from a very large number of users and look for cause-effect patterns. I'm curious to know if you've found any data that validates broadly an 80-20 intensity balance or, or, or thereabouts. I'll let yeah. you answer that one first. It's a two-parter. Hannah's, Hannah's the master of the two-part questions. Right. I wasn't quick enough on the yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, you got to yes, get actually, them right in there, Matt. <laughs> in the, a few years back, actually, we, um, we looked a bit into this and we actually looked at what parameters we could derive from the data to estimate performance. So for example, we take data collected over a few years from many people and then we find their best 10K race. And then we take the data in the three months prior to that. And then we look at that data and its relation to the performance, for example, is higher running volume, more distance linked to that performance? Or is their training polarization or distribution of training intensities linked to their performance? So when looking at all of that, there also it was quite clear that uh, a more polarized approach was linked to better performance. Then you cannot, again, link that to something that is causality because you know it's not an intervention. We didn't split people to do this and that, but still, there is a strong association, so that I think is a good first step to back up you know, the, the work that we know that you and Stephen Seiler have done in the context of, well, investigating and promoting, I think, this method. Right on. I'm ready. Uh, you can go with the second one now. It's amazing. I, I, I still remember part two, which is not guaranteed at my age. So, yeah, and then part two is, so if we have athletes who are following one of our training plans and using your app, and they are interested in in using the app to improve adherence, you know, to make sure that what they're intending to do, they actually do. Are there ways to do that? So I would say the um, best way, based on the evidence we have uh, now from all the recent studies on how to use this data in the context of training, is, well, first of all, to start with a plan. So that's a good start because without a training plan, this sounds obvious, but it's not. Like many people get to the tool before they get to the plan. So they have like, they look at the data and then until their HRV is good, they go hard, for example. And, you know, that's a recipe for disaster, right? Obviously you have to schedule 
rest and the intensity and cycle through those. And that's why you need to work with someone competent and start with a plan. Once you have the plan, I think then there is a place for HRV, which is you making small adjustments typically. So in that case, it would be, for example, if HRV is suppressed with respect to your historical data, so significantly suppressed, again, outside of your normal range, not just a bit lower, that's something that you know HRV for training will show you so that it's easy to understand if you are within that range or not. Then something that we know from these recent studies can be beneficial is simply to scale down the intensity. So if you had planned a high-intensity session, maybe it's not the best time to do that because basically your body is already stressed in a way that you would not assimilate that stimulus properly. And it's not about not being able to do it. I think that's also another misconception. Like, it's slow. does not mean that you cannot perform. Here we are talking about training. It's not a race. So it's about the process and getting to your best the day of the race and going hard when your body is very stressed basically will compromise that long-term process. So that's why you would scale it down and then do something easier. And then the day after or two days after when things are renormalized, you reintroduce the intensity. Typically, this means there is very few changes actually over a period of a typical eight to 12 weeks, maybe very short, but we can also go longer. These studies are shorter because you have to manage to do this for a long enough period and there are limitations in research. But, you know, in in real life, it would be a, a very similar approach in which for these weeks, you would just scale down the intensity of some sessions when you have a suppressed HRV. And what you've seen from the studies is that the performance of the group taking this approach instead of doing the session anyway would be improved either in performance or in other uh, physiological parameters linked to performance the day of the test. So in the long run, it would be better. And that I think is the easiest way and the more, I would say, uh, science-backed way to use HRV these days is just to spot these abnormal changes and then don't go too hard that day. It is that simple. There you go. <laughs> we have a closing segment, Matt. If you have any other questions, get them in now. Uh, well, I mean, I, I've got a bunch I would like to ask. Can I just do one more? Um, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Thanks. Thanks, boss. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's another. It's actually another two-parter, so <laughs> forgive me. I'll try to squeeze it into like one and a half. And it's, it's actually maybe perhaps a good setup for your closing question. Who knows? So first, do you see perhaps other completely different metrics coming around that we could use to complement HRV or even perhaps even surpass it? One that I keep waiting for is some way to measure brain activity during exercise. Because I think that is where the real action is, right? The organ that's actually driving everything. So that I'll probably have to wait. Maybe my grandkids will be able to use something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in terms of HRV itself, I think there are aspects that we don't fully understand yet, like even just about the measurement. Should we measure, you know, during the night or first thing in the morning? Or And when we measure first thing in the morning, is lying down optimal or should we be sitting? And the reasoning behind that is that when we do something a bit different, like sitting, we add a little stress. And there is a sort of a challenge on the body. And then your response to that might be more indicative, actually, of your capacity to take more stress with respect to just measuring at complete rest when you're sleeping or when you're lying down. So there can be more insights 
when you do a slightly different protocol, but this is not completely clear yet, nor it's easy to do because when you add this, you add confounders and it's more difficult to do it in the same way every day. It might take more time, so it's less practical. So there are, I think, different aspects, even just going to the very basics of what you are measuring and how you use that information. So that's something. On top of that, I think personally, I'm interested also in seeing what could drive these changes in resting physiology. Like we said, it might be difficult to change resting physiology, but there is a lot of work in trying to see if things like deep breathing practice, you know, or anything that is mindfulness or anything that seems to impact the parasympathetic nervous system through breathing has, for example, a longer term effect. Because we know that when we do the practice, there is a huge effect acutely that you can measure. But then one minute after when you're done, when you don't breathe that way anymore, basically there is no difference anymore and you're back to before. But there are some studies showing that when you keep up the practice for, you know, 40, 60 minutes per day, so we are taking quite a commitment there, then you do have improvements in resting physiology and maybe also health-wise in in different metrics. So in general, I would say any intervention that looks at these aspects, not only acutely, but also in terms of your baseline physiology over months and how that could be associated to health or performance, I think is something that will be investigated further in in the coming years. Again, because the technology is there and it's easier, uh, more people have it, so... There will be, I think, also more interest in investigating these things. The brain, very difficult to measure, especially with movement. Like anything that is movement is very bad for, well, we know that also for a heart rate, right? Just use a watch to measure your heart rate while running, and we all know that it's a difficult experience. So optical measures and anything that is non-invasive becomes very challenging when there is movement. We are making progress, I think, looking at different things, even just if you think about blood glucose these days and all the sensors that are being used to measure these changes, which seem to work very well at rest, or maybe a bit less during exercise, but still can be informative if they are consistent in what they measure, which might differ a bit from what you measure from blood. But still, optical measurements, I think, are, are really progressing a lot and might tell us more in the future. Other things, you know, like lactate would be fantastic, right? To be able to do that without doing it the way we do it today. So um, hopefully we will have some more things to play with in the upcoming years. I'm sure we will. And can't wait to see what you do with them either. (laughs) Okay, our closing segment. It is called the super deep question. You might feel like you're in the hot seat. Maybe you won't. But answer with the... The answer that is in the depths of your soul, okay? Your heartstrings are going to be pulled on this one. The question is, what is the mark that you want to leave on Earth through your research? Wow. <laughs> um, well, honestly, like, I do what I do basically to provide a way for people to measure resting physiology and better understand stress. And I think, for me, that's all there is, so allow people to measure the things in a way that is cheap and accurate and then it's more about them learning by using the tool more than us uncovering some great truth behind it you know every experience is so personal that's why i also say okay when we look at the data at the group level 
we isolate very simple things, training, alcohol, all of that. Because at the longer time scale, I do not think you can do anything valuable because you don't have the context. Only the individual knows what they're going through. So the goal is really to provide the tools so that you can explore that and understand from that and make changes for your health and performance related to that more than us. So that's, I think, what drives what we do and why we are still here talking about it and hoping that people can learn something about it. That was a sneaky good answer. I like it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. Learned a great amount. Thank you for (laughs) correcting my definition of HRV and debunking some myths that I had. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It was great chatting with you. Well, that was fun, but you know what's going to be almost as fun? Yes, our closing segment, What's Your Jam? Hannah, what's your jam this week? My jam of the week is Many Times by the artist Dijon, and I unfortunately actually don't know much about him other than the fact that he is very, very similar to Leon Bridges, who was your jam last week and an artist we both love. But he just released a full album at the end of this year, about a month ago, I think. And that song is just so fun. It's very upbeat. It's pretty short, but the cadence of which he says some of the lyrics is really interesting and different. But if you like Leon Bridges, definitely give that one a listen. That's a good call. I've been rocking some Dijon lately myself. Uh, Actually? my Yeah. Oh, sure. nice. Yes. Yep. Well, we've discovered we have some overlap in our in our tastes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you like my jam this week. Uh, <laughs> check check back with me. But it is a song okay. called Menthol. It's another collaboration. I don't know why I'm on a streak of collaborations, but it's an odd pairing. An LA kind of he calls himself an alt pop polymath named Gene Dawson, and then uh, the Canadian singer songwriter Mac DeMarco teamed up for this one. I actually, when I first heard it, I thought it was a TV on the radio song. And if you like TV on the radio, I'm quite certain you'll like this song. It's kind of like a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of a rock and roll song, but it has a little bit of an urban vibe to it. It is also short, uh, punchy, upbeat. And for the athletes listening who just don't care about music and, and only care about sports and wish we would only talk about sports, there's a the song <laughs> closes with one of those, you know how some artists would put it like a voice message? Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually Mac leaving a message for Gene, which is, it, the message is just so cool. It's something that I, as a coach, find myself wanting to say in one way or another to athletes all the time. So even if you don't like the song, Hang in there and listen to Mac's voice message that he left for his friend and collaborator, Gene Dawson. Wow. Another great teaser, Matt. You crushed these. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the 8020 Endurance Podcast and to our segment, What is Your Jam? Two little announcements. Spotify just released their ratings for their podcast. So if you are listening to this podcast on Spotify and you're liking what you're hearing, please rate us five stars. Takes about two seconds. And also listen to our jams, which you can find in our show notes. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.